clubhouse. Do you understand now where all this is going? I do. Do you think you can save them? I've seen a path. Have you seen how it ends? Every scenario, I die. Not every scenario. You could choose not to return to their world, to stay here, in whatever world you choose. Tell me, my friend, which will it be? back online it's time for another episode of the valley beyond a westworld podcast this is mike this is caroline and this is paul tonight we're talking about episode three of season four of westworld it was called <clears throat> puts on this french beret a ne fool which translates for you uh, non-french speaking people the crazy years it was how france referred to its 1920s what we call the roaring 20s here in the states the episode was written by Kevin Lau and Suzanne Rubel. This is uh, Suzanne's been a staff writer for Westworld since season three. This is Kevin's first writing episode for Westworld, though he's also writing episode four. It was directed by Hanel M. Culpepper. This is her first episode directing for Westworld, but Pod Clubhouse fans will know Hanel's work from several episodes of Nosferatu that she directed way back when. She's also directed many episodes of Star Trek and a bunch of other great shows. So she's definitely been around the biz. If this is the first time you're listening to one of our podcasts, we just want to give you guys a reminder that we don't go, you know, moment by moment through every episode. We just like hit our high points, low points and discuss our opinions on it. But we do assume you've watched this episode. So there'll be lots of spoilers ahead if you haven't. So if not, please pause, go watch, come back. Bernard's back and so is Stubbs. You guys, you know I was so excited for Bernard finally to make his appearance and finally in episode three. What did you guys think of his conversation? We have uh, uh, Akichita is back looking all uh, fancied up and him and Bernard have that conversation. Bernard's in the sublime. Uh, First impressions, what was it? What did you think of seeing him back in the world? I was like, Akichita's like, I'm on my own show now, so I can only be on a little bit of Westworld, and I'm definitely not going to be naked ever again on this show. Dark Winds got a season two renewal at AMC already. Go go check that show out. That's impressive. I saw the premiere at uh, ATX, and it is a worthy uh, little whodunit set on the Navajo reservation in 1970. So it's a a retro feel. It's based on Tony Hillerman novels. 
Wars. Uh, it's not related to Westworld, <laughs> but it's, it's probably worth your time. We're happy still, though, to see Zahn McLarnan back here. Uh, I mean, he's just got one of those faces and voices that's just very listenable, right? When, when he starts talking, you kind of like pay attention to what he's saying. Oh, I always lean forward. I'm like, what is he going to give us? What information is he going to pass on here? Also, I think at this point, being episode three, all of us have our like, which characters are coming back eyes on and, you know, peeping in every crowd. So as soon as you see a familiar face, you're like, oh, look who it is. If it's not a recycled face, it's a recycled character with a new face. Like we saw in uh, Golden Age, we had like a new Dolores, mm-hmm. you know, which was a little off, not off putting, was a little disorienting, you know, seeing uh, the blue was a dress. a little off put. She seems wicked young. Well, with regard to Akichita, though, we know that he was one of the older hosts that they used to take around to investor meetings to prove the technology and his ghost nation roots in the park when when the uprising happened all the stuff that ghost nation was doing we had some question marks about whether you know they were further along the path in terms of becoming sentient beings so him being bernard's kind of a morpheus to bernard's neo there you go. He's like, I've yeah. been here, and here, here's the lowdown, because you seem confused. So it's believable that it would be that character as opposed to, say, Maeve's daughter. He had really become a leader, obviously not as much screen time as Maeve or even Hector and Armistice and, and, and Dolores and Teddy, but he definitely became a leader of the of the hosts that were making their way to the Valley Beyond. Uh, I, it's interesting. I mean, we have the clip here, and we'll insert it here, where he explains, basically, what is happening here and what Bar- where Bernard is. Here in our world. Your world. No. Ours. The world is limitless as the creatures we are. The sublime. Where are the others? In worlds of their own choosing. This world doesn't interest them. It interests you. So you made this for me. You made it for yourself. Westworld. The massacre. You're replaying the past. Stuck in another loop. Why? The world out there is in trouble. It needs our help. You love them. It's irrational, of course. A rare flaw in ones like us. I almost envy you. What do you think of the idea that Bernard is so in love with humans that he's choosing to live his world that he created was not only the Westworld Massacre, but that he's so singularly focused on the outside, that he's not living his quote-unquote best life the way the other hosts would define it. Consistent for Bernard? Yeah, for sure. I mean, he spent... A lot of time thinking he was Bernard. It was kind of later that he learned that he was this copy of Arnold. And so I think he identifies with with both sides. And that makes him sort of not 100% welcome either case. You know, people won't accept him. And and to an extent, it doesn't sound like hosts quite accept him. Akichita is cool, but, you know, you could interpret his his uh the others don't have any interest in this place as maybe they don't have any interest in helping you (laughs) bernard well i actually 
was happy with the line of when Bernard said, where are the others? And they said they're, they're in worlds of their own making. There was something about that that suddenly really shed a lot of light onto Christina and perhaps, you know, other moments here, maybe even of what we're seeing. That was very exciting to me. That and the whole explaining time with his little um, like fancy, it's like how I would pass a note in like third grade where you he like keep a, folding he kind of it. Abandoned the the napkin though. Like he, he did. started he folding. Did. And he was just kind of this. <laughs> this isn't working for me. But that's also kind of how I was about notes too. By by the time we're in high school, I just fold it two times. No no cootie catcher out of this. But but here's the thing: we spent so much time in the last episode saying, now was it three days? Do we think she was in three days? having him come in the next episode and be like y'all are way too freaking worried about the exact linear timing because that is not how time works i was like oh whoops he's like looking directly at us he says one year in the real world is a thousand years or a millennia in the sublime which gives them all this time to play out all of the different world scenarios as he put it bernard later on the worlds that might have been and the worlds yet to come will you come with me oh no my own world's called to me. But I can give you a gift. What gift? The future, Bernard. In your world. Time is a straight line. One year there is a millennium here. We use that time to build worlds. Models of possibilities simulations of all the paths your world could take i suggest you explore them but you better be quick past a certain point in your world all paths end in destruction that's a lot of fucking worlds to to parse through did you get a little uh dr strange and endgame vibe when he said that and how he very did much it? I mean, just the entire idea of the you know, sixteen million five hundred and one, you know, possible outcomes, and I've there's only one that works. I've examined them all. the The idea of playing with time, I think you're onto something, Caroline. That Bernard maybe is a little bit seen as like a little bit of a tra- uh, traitor to the other hosts, and that's why it's a Kichita and no one else greeting him. Or I think maybe Paul actually you you implied that that no one else is coming out to help him. So Akitra kind of has to be the one. I just like the idea that where he said where everyone else is, that they're all in worlds of their own making. Like there's something about that that, again, like like I've been saying, this seems like some sort of purgatory punishment kind of situation for, for Dolores over there that that is the only thing that that spoke to for me. I was like, man, is that, are we talking about where she is and how she got there and, and what she's done to get there? Let's talk about the images he sees. The gift that Akichita grants him is this ability to see all of the worlds. I stop motioned as much as possible and did screen grabs just to take a look at it. Here are some of the things that I saw. I mean, chime in if you guys noticed other things, and maybe we could talk about some of the more important ones. We see the sands in the desert that him and Stubbs and Aurora Perrineau end up in later. There are several shots of his hand hanging over the dirt, almost like he's either like he's pulling something out or grabbing it. There's like an old military style computer something that you would have seen in like one of those computers that took up like an entire room maybe like a like an old-fashioned version of like Womper from war games <laughs> um there's like a military industrial complex kind of tunnel that seems like it's part of that same building we get a click of uh, a picture of the roads and diner where they go obviously after they leave the motel um there's this canopy that looks like it is on the roof of delos's headquarters 
but it I, I wicker it was like a wicker canopy to me i couldn't think of any other material Some to kind describe of it as. yeah yeah like kind of like sticks banded together um and there are shots of it from inside looking down kind of the barrel of it which it looks like it ends in like a fireplace but then there were also shots from outside of it where there are the two red mechs the same red mechs that we've saw previously that hale used to employ the riot control mechs Right. There was the a single tree in the distance on the roof by the yurt, uh, which looked like the same tree that Bernard saw on fire in the sublime when he was first making his way to Akichida. There was a shot of a room that had a skyline view outside of it and several different views of that, which, again, looked very much like the skyline that that Christina is in, uh, like a very ultra modern skyline. Those are the things I saw. I, I mean, I think the military bunker is maybe the weapon that they're talking about in this episode or or part of the weapon that's buried under the sand? That was my first guess, but I'm curious if you guys had any thoughts on any of those pictures. I read it as highly representational of, of a sort of a, a dream state wherein we are to perceive that he is, he is getting a lot of information all at once in like computer kind of way where it's like his his perception of time, the way it's passing, the way he's understanding things is not meant to be 100% literal. There are clues there, like you pointed out. There's probably definitely some clues there, some clips that have that will be from things to come. The understanding of all eventualities that he's outlined, but also presented in a, in, a, in sort of a dreamlike, it's not clear how it, how it all fits together yet kind of way. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so that you can hear more. The point of view of like what you guys are calling the yurt, I'm kind of interested in because it seems like the point of view is from inside of it, like as if we're, I'm not going to use the word trapped exactly, but definitely some sort of cage-esque feel to it because every time it's like you're looking through the things from the inside. So there's something that's that's a little, you know, frightening to me on that front. The totally dusty town, like where it's all like abandoned of the... 20s like it's already abandoned though like that's like like we know this is not going to work out that is one of those questions that i don't think we have any possible way of answering at this point other than putting it up on the board as a question of what timeline Stubbs and bernard are even working in can we talk about Stubbs and bernard just for a moment of like the before bernard gets into his his state there just just their the reunion of bernard being awake and and him and Stubbs actually getting a little banter i just like that they picked it up right uh, they repeated the the shot of him from the season three post credit scene finale. That Stubbs was right there, very loyal, right loyal friend to be standing there all those years, keeping watch over him. Well, also he was programmed to do that, and uh, I'm curious as to how programming he re- doesn't always work out in this in this show. Though. I guess that's true. I'm curious to know how he recovered and if his left arm is still bum. Like if you noticed when he first appears on screen, his hand is in his pocket and mm-hmm. um, part of the season three situation with Stubbs was everything he had gone through had resulted in a, in a left arm that he really couldn't use. He could he could lift a beer with it, but that was about it. And he, so it wasn't useful for fighting or defending Bernard or any of that. So I'm kind of curious as to, you know, what what he can do, especially considering now that when we see Bernard he kill, he turns on killbot bernard without going through that little you know self talk like 
moment that he used to have in season three before he would turn on Killbot Bernard. You know, you know what I'm referring to? Right, right. Yes. I mean, so th- deep thinker prophecy Bernard has fully merged with kick ass Bernard. The guy that can break a chain. When you, if you go into a fight and you see a guy just pull a chain and it breaks. Yeah. Run away, <laughs> run away. Right. Don't bother well, pulling a gun. Well, it's, it's like- <laughs> See you later, alligator. After a while, crocodile. After supper, motherfucker. (laughs) You got to use common sense and get out of those fights. Exactly. (laughs) Chain breaking? No way. Bernard is very much like, I I kept thinking of the Matrix in this episode. He was very much like uh, Neo, like, whoa, I know Kung Fu. You know, like he was just, he was just like, let's do this. Like, this is the plan. He has clarity. We don't know the plan. And Stubbs, I think, is like the avatar for the viewers this whole episode, where he's just kind of staring at him a little bit like, what are you even talking? talking about like you're weirder than you even were before you went into the sublime that was so funny when he said that (laughs) but he's got clarity i mean he's got a season mission statement he gives it to us there's the clip right here from the diner in the sublime i saw all the worlds that might have been and all the worlds that could come most of them end in disaster but if i can trigger a certain series of events then we have a small chance of making it we're still on the right track. So if I'd ordered a BLT, then we'd be fucked right now. It would mean we triggered a different variant. Here's your coffee. Oh, so sorry. Not a problem. <laughs> You've been given the gift of prophecy and you use it to fight stains. We never get this kind of clarity of mission. He summarizes it. There is one specific path that leads to us being able to save humanity or me being able to save humanity. Every other version of it fucks us. So I got to make sure we stay on the path. All the little hints that he drops, it's kind of cool to think about. Like his host mind is recognizing all of the eventualities that lead to that, that one goal. But then as different little decisions happen or different events like how he has to verify that those two guys are who he thinks he is it's almost like you can see his mind narrowing down the the branches as they get closer and closer and you could also imagine that as we get further closer to the to the goal things maybe get maybe get more and more dire as he needs to fight harder to make sure that they go down the very certain eventualities that go closer to victory because right now there's just so many of them pastrami tuna whatever but uh it's well and snow globe and postcard i mean it was fun banter because it was part of them like reuniting when he first wakes up but Stubbs making the you didn't even bring me a snow globe from the sublime you know bernard says again clarity like really not hiding it just telling us what it is he's like you've helped me eliminate half of all of the possibilities <laughs> you know in, in an infinite amount of possibilities that's a huge help to be able to just take half of them off of the board right. and start whittling down from there i super enjoyed how they directed that entire scene how the how they had the scene play out of bernard leaving the diner and going and getting the guys and doing the entire like the second that they they kind of uh, squared up on Stub sitting there and then starting to play with the the little jukebox at the table. Call me on the line. <laughs> but it was so funny because as soon as you saw that with all that glass behind him, I was like, oh, we're going to see the entire fight scene behind him and he's going to be oblivious to what is happening. Do but- you know of another movie or show? Because definitely Paul and I were like, we've seen this. We've 100% seen this where the person's inside 
eating, drinking, talking, doing whatever, watching TV. And right behind them, behind the window, there's like the all the actions happening. It's, it's always played for comedic effect. Always. always. I like the scene. I loved it. Call Me by Blondie, though, the the jokiness of it felt very jarring for Westworld, though. I, I can't think of another time that Westworld took this tact for showing us an action scene or anything narrative. Mm. Well, they not overtly with the actual song but you know they've done I've, instrumentals in of like episode, of like one of like paint it black two. or or whatever during an action scene where they underscore what's happening with an instrumental version of a pop song. This, sure, is, this is the, the pop, pop song. song. Right. I mean, <laughs> right. yeah, diegetic music, though, that then fades in the soundtrack music, and there's like a whole fight. It, 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 I liked it. I liked it a lot, but it felt, I was like, this is something new for Westworld, which, you know, sees four seasons in. Here's how it, why it worked. It worked for me because Stubbs picks it. It's diner music. It's, and it's yeah. the thing, okay, but it, that's why it's a disconnect. If it was like some badass music, then that would be like that Stubbs under Understood what was happening outside by picking something that's such a contrast it like keeps it with that huge obviously Stubbs has no idea what's going on he's playing this pop song what's funny about that is that that'd be like a 70 year old song at that point um so that'd right. be like you know could you yourself imagine going into a diner and like perusing the music of 70 year old hits you say like, that but paul that's only like the 1950s and yeah in fact there's plenty of diners that would have 1950s i think would fit that songs that it. scene that's a good point we're so old i, I think what fits that I song think it's is actually like more that. i think it's actually probably almost closer to like like al jolson jazz singer <laughs> you know or, age, yeah, actually yeah. i mean we're doing, well uh, who knows though we don't know what year we in we could be a thou- we could be a millennia ahead that's we don't true. know we don't know. You know we don't we're assuming but that's a bad assumption what, what i liked about it was the it matched the tempo of his of his, his very determined stride mm-hmm. out to the car if you think about the way that that was shot with the tracking shot on a with the camera that was obviously on on tracks as it followed him out of the diner and the sun is so bright that it blots him out for a little bit as the camera passes by the sun being in that spot you know that they only had like 15 minutes to shoot that yeah. <laughs> before the sun changed and it ruined the shot. I don't know. I love seeing that kind of stuff where they get everything exactly so and you know that if they fucked it up, they'd have to come back tomorrow and they definitely didn't want to come back tomorrow. Well, so huge, huge accolades to Hanel, yeah, the director for like finding this exact, the way to shoot this. At, this is probably one of the first times that we're talking about how it was all set up and the specific choices that they're making. So this was one of those times when it was like, that was really fun to, to go through that fight sequence because we have many other fight sequences in this episode. Even. I mean, if you look at her resume, uh, it's it's chock full of stylistically shot things. So it she's makes about sense the that- big entrance, especially when there's when there's going to be a rumble. People like come out of the the smoke, you know, or like whatever's going to happen. Like there's a big entrance. This episode also underlines something that we mentioned last week. We talked about Maeve uh, in particular having like a lot of humor in her dialogue. It was very witty and snarky. All of the Bernard prophecy stuff really tickled me. From the tuna Mel pastrami thing to the bring the show 
shovel to, you know, you couldn't have told me about the death laser things. And he's like, <laughs> I, I knew she would tell you, you know, all of it was just uh, the chemistry between Hemsworth and, and Jeffrey Wright is fantastic, which you guys alluded to in real life. Uh, you oh got God. To yeah. Well, yeah. You, but go, it's on screen though. You're, you're getting it on screen though, which is fantastic. If you go back to season one, which we've been doing just sort of in our spare time and you see Stubbs when he's interacting with Elsie, that personality was always there. It's just in season two and season three, everything was so under duress that it never get to come out. You know, if you remember at the end of season one, he was abducted by a ghost nation and, and then he was treated like a complete clown by um, the Delos personnel that showed up to reclaim the park during season two. So that wasn't, you know, peak Stubbs. And then season three, he was put into guardian mode. And um, that also had, that was some of his personality, but he was damaged. So this is a, a return to Stubbs that has always been there. He's always been this very, you know, charismatic, kidding, kidding guy. Which I'd say he is in real life. I think, uh, yeah, I think, I think uh, the actual Luke Hemsworth is, someone you'd you'd want to invite over for to watch a football game no one asked me my opinion and this is several (laughs) several seasons old at this point but elsie was my favorite character on the Uh, show can i just tell you in looking back when we were seeing some of those old characters i was like i'm so sad that elsie's gone how many times did i say that paul where i was like oh in a show that regularly brings back characters i most sad that she has not made a return she might have been too smart you know she might have uh figured things out too quickly if, if she, she, they captain marveled her is that what you're saying <laughs> they, they made her too op so they have to keep her off screen well they had to blow her brains out and oh, yeah. and that's a bummer because uh because she, she was on our side she was <laughs> well until she got killed because she was trying to blackmail i mean <laughs> she actually went out in not a great way i mean charlotte charlotte shot her at that point because she was trying to blackmail her and maybe sell uh bernard down the river in her final moments but you know, but up until that point, though, I really liked Elsie and I liked Elsie and Bernard together. So I guess maybe Stubbs is the new Elsie. I have to say, you guys, I think this was a super successful bringing Stubbs and Bernard back. Like, you know, every, this is so anticipated. It could have been a situation, you know, like you said, Mike, like you wanted it to be exactly where we left him. You know, you wanted this exact type of banter between them. I'm thrilled with the way that they brought them back and the dynamic that they gave them. They could have messed this up because because too many people are so excited about it. They could have really bogged down Bernard's mission as well. And I feel like they handled it super cleanly. They they used the maze to take him to the tower. He he walks into the tower. He meets Akichita. Akichita and him have a very kind of plain spoken conversation about the path. And then the maze comes back again and he draws the maze. He sketches it out and then he uses that as proof to get in with our newest character, Aurora Paranel. Debuting on the show without a name yet. We don't know what she's actually called. You know, come to think of it, Akichita might have been more like the architect than Morpheus. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> really, maybe. Or, really or the your... key master. Yeah, one or, of those. The architect could have rebooted. I think maybe more like a key master. Maybe the oracle. Maybe he's, uh, you know, did you break the plate ah, because I said yes. it? Or Okay, know. all right. There you go. <laughs> yes. Come to our Matrix rewatch next Saturday. <laughs> it's going to be fantastic. That's not real. Don't come to it. 
I like how much the maze is making an appearance again. This is, you know, people are talking about how the show feels like season one again in a good way. I think people are excited about season four so far. Yeah, I think so, too. Not that I dislike the other seasons, but season one had a magic to it that I think that they're really getting back to. And the maze and what it means, I think, is a large part of that, though people maybe don't realize it. Because now we've seen Christina see the maze. We've seen Bernard. The maze is very important to him in this episode. Well, the maze turned into almost nothing in season two and then absolutely nothing in season three. But if you watch season one again... That is all the man in black wants to talk about is oh, yeah. the maze, the game, the it's something been so true. Fun rewatching well, it's the trigger, right? It's when 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 Dolores digs it up in the graveyard, and it's the maze inside the tin, and the man in black starts beating her up and stuff because he thinks that she's lying. He can't think that like this little maze with a ball in it. This is the fucking thing. But <laughs> it's the trigger that wakens them. It's the thing that starts them on their path to consciousness for for lack of a better word and so we're seeing that use again here you guys highly highly recommend going back and watching season one even alongside these episodes um, because you can find so many amazing just little callbacks but connections and even just like we were watching an episode last night when ford actually comes and talks to the man in black um when he's sitting there with teddy in the saloon and just thinking about even the the use of music the player piano kind of plays them out <laughs> you know it just starts playing it's like doo, 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 and like ford is just gone and i was like man that's freaking awesome to be like played out of a scene like that that's funny yeah it was so funny to see but also it clicked a switch with teddy and teddy like has a completely different demeanor from like their that point on it reminded me of our conversation last week about the use of music and the use of like flipping a switch like starting to play that jukebox song like suddenly bernard like has this stride like he's like freaking going and there's something that's very very cool about watching the season one and and looking back at these two it also makes me be like when we get to predictions i i'm like counting like which one was it when there was that crazy sex orgy okay so episode five and this one is gonna be nuts because i feel like there's such parallels in the in the seasons i mean they they literally name drop pariah in this episode you know girl paris from gilmore girls oh isn't she so wild <laughs> She, she down for the pariah orgies so which i mean very paris like i don't know i, I wonder if gilmore gilmore Carroll fans will be upset at that so. uh no i don't think so i think i think paris would play this game to win so there's no there she would never come here on quote vacation she would be the type of person who's like i have to be the best of the best so that it tracked she also became the editor of the Temperance newspaper. What? <laughs> <laughs> That'd be so funny. That's While funny. She's there. Uh, let's talk about Aurora Perno. She's introduced to the show. We don't get a lot with her or Daniel Wu. We meet both of them in this episode. We get a little more with Aurora because she has some of the wacky comedy bits with Prophecy Bernard. You know, you can't do that. You can't shoot us because he has your gun. What? And then Stubbs takes the gun. All that kind of shtick, the death lasers, all of that. You guys, First is that how death lasers though? work? Like, could you really do that with like with like mirrors? You guys have seen a lot more sci-fi than me. Could you really like that I mean, doesn't break the I've, the I've seen that trick with other lasers in sci-fi shows. Okay, so. so it doesn't break the laser to to you know like break the field for once you start like raising up those mirrors. Um well, I was a little concerned about when they just kind of haphazardly let the 
the mirrors just fall back into place without like timing it exactly. Um, they were just like, meh, we're through, whatever. It must, it must give you like a 30 second window. Like when I come through my apartment, like the gate slides open and you get like 40 seconds to go through before the death and, lasers come back and, on. And then the death lasers return. <laughs> you always had to put those mirrors up. I mean, my car is a lot shorter than it used to be. Let's just say that. Right. So he drives a DeLorean, so it like has like the stainless steel. Now. Right. I used to have a stretch Hummer limo, and now I just have like a Hummer. It's just like regular size. Just a hum. Just a hum. <laughs> oh, we're gonna get into humming, humming and throbbing later on. In the oh episode, my god! When we get to baby, Caleb. we definitely, definitely are. But. Uh, again, for the crazy board, for questions, because I don't think we have anything remotely to answers. We have the the group that is for the cause. Talk about your they're one of them. Seems like an anti-host group or paramilitary group. What, what's the vibe we're getting from Aurora, Daniel Wu, and the other sand people here? With regard to the timeline aspect of the storytelling and how we don't actually know. I mean, the, the amount of shit on Bernard and the level of degradation to the motel could that happen in seven or eight years maybe but could it also be more like 30 also that could be two you know so you might as you might think well if that's true then maybe hail gets a lot further down the line than than we think right and world conquest humans really do become an endangered species was my feeling was was that this is a little post-apocalyptic in the time frame that they are dealing with and that nature it's one of those things that you see in a you know, post-apocalyptic movies where nature begins to reclaim the lands yes. you know this show has a history of of cities being buried in sand i'm thinking of escalante and ford and his uh, narrative and digging it or unearthing it mm-hmm. i had strong vibes of that when i was hearing bernard talk about it's buried the weapon is buried in the sand in this episode i've played a lot of cyberpunk 2077 in the last six months that little diner little gas station all that is almost like plucked right out of that game in terms of nailing the just the rundown earth aspect that the game is trying to create um the the show does also it pulls from those same uh, time-worn tropes of just nothing there looks new. They're driving this car that if it is only eight years on from the rest of the show, then that's an, like an 80-year-old car, which Caroline correctly points out, would not have very sophisticated computers or you know chips or anything on board. So well, that I it, know that's one of the things you're supposed to do right away. You could away. survive EMPs and other stuff like that. It doesn't have the electronics. Exactly, right? yes. The people like when you roll down your window for the Great Poupon, like there actually is a handle to roll down. (laughs) I was explaining to the kids. I was like, I was like explaining next to them just yesterday. And I I realized I've probably really messed up their minds. For those of you who haven't seen next, go check it out. There's one season of it. But the whole concept of that the car could take over, you know, and and could be controlled by something on the outside. I was I was 100 percent using all my sci fi knowledge. And then I was like, you got to find an old car got to get to the library your kids were seen throwing all of your alexa echoes out <laughs> last night is, is that, right exactly that why? they were very very concerned with the, with the group though Wu and aurora their group uh, if were i daniel Wu, i'd i would put on my resume i can act 
outside of the Badlands too. Not only in Badlands do I need to perform. <laughs> yes, yes, I agree with you, but I think his presence kind of ensures we're going to get some some sick level martial arts fighting. Some, some sword point. fighting, some... Uh, yeah, the, I mean, homie throws down like no one's business, so I think we're, we're definitely... I, He's a talented performer. Yeah, and and he emotes. I mean, even in this episode, I, I, he had like what two lines? One maybe. Well, some stern looks, some some tight jaw muscles. <laughs> he, he was doing some good face acting, right? I mean, just by looking at the head in the bag. I mean, he was doing some good face acting and interacting with Aurora. So stern looks <laughs> for fans of Prodigal Son. I thought Aurora Perrineau had a very strong Danny vibe. If you were a fan of her work on that show, incredulous but also curious and willing to roll with things and give it a chance. I don't know. Maybe it's just kind of her coming through her roles but uh, I, I liked her vibe immediately I'm excited to see her with this group I think her and Stubbs and Bernard are going to make like a fun little man I don't want to say threesome but you know like a, a, a little group un, unto themselves so in terms of our our uh, wild idea um, corkboard though I, I'm putting up there the, the remains of humanity slash resistance like this is not concurrent with civilization happening elsewhere and these are just some kooks that don't like the robots this right. may be it right this is like the last like uh, like one of a uh, narrow pocket of humanity left and i don't think we can overlook the fact that they're in the contaminated labs you know in the desert that sounds like a nuclear bomb explosion went bad or some kind of some kind of testing went horribly wrong and it became like an unlivable area you well know? there was a specific word that they used which, which was condemned and that one really struck a chord because of the government talk we were having in the previous discussions paul kept not hearing condemned and when i said oh that's what they said Paul, you were real quick to be like, the government condemns things. And so it was like, interesting, just like ways to like think about who would condemn an area, who would call it that, you know? Would you at all be surprised if that area was actually the Golden Age Park that they just opened, but, you know, 20, 30 years on and completely shitted out because they had another robot uprising and it went completely to hell again? But it did it on North American soil. No, I will not be surprised. I will not be surprised either. And I'm hesitant to say that the park is, in fact, really meant to be a park. I think I think this episode really makes it clear that the park is really just an elaborate. It's just it's just a mousetrap for humans. It's just a way to get humans in there so they can become fodder for experimentation. I don't think this has the money making corporate aspect to it like the original Westworld does. I, I think this is really just an elaborate place to try humans well there sure were a lot of flies in the 20s no shit when she was like this place has gone to shit or whatever oh, she like yeah, slaps the fly and i was like Ooh. She dead fly off yeah uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, we can get into Maeve and Caleb because, I mean, I, I think I think the Bernard stuff we covered, except for the stuff that we don't know. I mean, I think this was a lot of question marks popping out of this introduction. As but well I think as people are going to be thrilled that Bernard and Stubbs is back. They're back and they're and they're excellent together. This is what we wanted. This is what people needed. Like, this is going to scratch that itch, I think. Yeah, so Maven Caleb, I mean, this was the most fun for me was watching them walk through Temperance and walk into the Butterfly Club and then seeing all of the Sweetwater callbacks. So I listed a bunch of my good. notes, but I was curious, did you guys have a favorite that made you laugh or like just like kind of like, oh, oh yeah, look at that. 
Well, again, it's super fun because we had just watched when, you know, we have I always I never really think of them as Logan and William. I always think of them as Jimmy and Ben, specifically Ben Barnes. He's never just Ben to me. He's Ben Barnes. I don't know why. That's the way he likes me to say it. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so the thing is that I like I really enjoyed like if you guys if you didn't catch stuff or whatever, it's worth just watching that five or ten minutes of them coming into Sweetwater and having all of the same discussions really really fun again putting me right on that loop with them where i i myself am like looking forward and expecting exactly what's going to be happening in each scene you know what's funny about re-watching that is now that we know who ends up where you know in, in the first time that we watch it we're set up to think that logan is a psychotic guy that you definitely wouldn't want to be around but now i'm watching it and i think he's actually just a dick who who knows what's going on that's all you know he's he he accepts that he has this side of him that that wants to do these kind of vile things but i don't know that that in the in the context of everything that that's actually totally unhealthy i know that it makes him kind of a dick but i don't know that he's more dangerous than a dick I feel like he was like a bully is what I kept yeah. saying. I was like, wow, I didn't right. I, I remembered him definitely talking down, you know, the whole time to William and and being like, come on, let loose like that kind of stuff. But I didn't exactly remember the level of pounding him in the chest but about what a piece of shit he is. But you I know, you know, one of the phrases Westworld loves is, uh, you know, have you questioned the nature of your reality? Logan never questions the nature of his reality. He understands exactly where he is and what he's doing, and and he understands the assignment. It's William that begins to question the nature of his reality, that the park must hold a deeper meaning for him. Now, the park holds a deeper meaning, but like all the hosts told him, including and then Ford also, it's not meant for you, William. Like The deeper meaning here is for the hosts, not for you. I think, though, that there was something about the way that Logan would speak to to William specifically about things like like the job, right? So when he's talking to him about, oh, you know, you just became this middle management VP kind of thing, there was something about I think he questioned his reality because to start with, because of the shit that Logan was saying, because he was saying basically like the things you think you've earned, the place you think you are in the real world is is all bullshit. So where like Logan was like, I mean, his feet were firmly planted, like he knew the good, the bad and the ugly of the real world that he lived in. But here's William, who not only can't wrap his brain around, you know, is this woman falling in love with me? Am I falling in love with her? All that stuff. But then he's being told. And when we go back there, you're on quicksand. There's nothing that's real about what you think is happening back at work. And you could see his face start to change even then. And that wasn't even really the park so much as it was Logan starting to dismantle real life reality for him marrying to family is hard especially when the family is super rich and you know logan logan could have that opinion though right because at that point he was the heir apparent you know he mm -hmm. knew he would be running it or thought he would be running it for long term so he thought like william would have to like lick his boots kind of thing and and william snapped like so many people who get bullied do and and you know what was extra sadistic about logan there's the part where he's getting beat up and he calls out to William to come help and William refuses. It's like the first time he like is is like making a stand and been like, no, fuck off. I'm not going to. He turns and they go back to Logan's face and Logan smiles like he's glad he broke him. He's glad that he made him get to a point where he isn't going to try. Level. Yeah. 
Yeah. And there's something about that that was like, oh, my God, Logan himself really started William down this road. And he ended up walking naked through the desert. <laughs> I don't know. For me, I, I think my favorite part of the walk through Sweetwater was the condensed can of milk. And, oh, yeah. and, and when he goes can. to pick it up and do not pick that up. Yeah. No, <laughs> that know, was which, super good. You know, but then you get to see Dolores, you know, like fake Dolores and another guy picks it up and starts that whole loop. But just, you know, hitting on, I think, Caroline, you've been talking about the mama bear slash ex-lover kind of vibes oh, that yeah. Maeve is giving off to Caleb. Like that was, again, present in this episode, less less over, less overt than uh, last week's. But even that line, like, don't pick that up. OK, don't pick it up because you don't want him to start the Dolores uh-huh. loop or because he knows like. Keep your focus on me, please. please well, that and, and I would say there was another part when I felt it from Caleb when we're in the I want to say Mariposa, but now it's Butterfly. When the how the, American <laughs> when the woman um, that plays Maeve is being hit on by the two guys and they're like, "Come on, two for one," and he is disgusted. He's like, "I can't believe you have to put up with that kind of stuff." Like he's obviously being very like, "You should be treated better." This isn't you know you're you're Maeve, you know like that kind of like you can see the the chemistry there of of him feeling protective specifically about her he doesn't see the difference he doesn't see her as a host he sees Mm -mm. her just as like a a person uh, you know same as him paul what about you what things did you enjoy the the callback stuff well just the different adaptations from you know instead of finding a a posse to go out into the woods or the, the surrounding desert or whatever they needed whatever they were trying to get but they were it, trying to get like a gangster right yeah a gangster yeah, or like they're hector i mean it, was, it wasn't uh, hector they were calling hecky. him hecky, hecky. hecky. Yeah. So funny. yeah yeah all that stuff the, the tommy guns instead of revolvers or rifles all all of it I, I i enjoyed i gotta tell you it makes me laugh every time because it's just so wienerish but the goddamn <laughs> kids always always fucking with the drunk sleeping on the ground yeah. in all of the iterations it's always it always makes me laugh because it's such a a funny little thing that someone in westworld like the writing staff like the actual creatives finds funny like all of the other things have like some substance to them like the two kids picking on the drunk guy sleeping on the ground just must tickle them it must just be very funny to them because that's always there it was in shogun world it was in westworld it was here it's always there it's very funny to me i i enjoyed all the all the little things that were going on in the background the you know taking pictures and pictures and i mean that was always so funny to me when when they would do it in the past but i would like to say that like there was a big part of this even in just us talking about it the realization of what a fraud this park is in terms of they came up with so few new ideas Lee Sizemore says that, though, when back in season two, when they go to Shogun World and Maeve catches lines that are being ripped directly from Westworld and Lee Sizemore's with them, he's like, well, I, I may have cribbed some lines. And he's like, no, you, you cribbed the entire thing. <laughs> Listeners may not remember that, though. And I think when, when you see a new park, like something that was just introduced to us as a new park, and then you come through this and you just realize just what a hack that this whole situation is, it was making me shake my head and kind of grin like not just the comparison but like they got they didn't even try to come up with something that was like more fresh before we move to the moving to the underground i love all of the orchestrations they do here but when enter sandman queued up 
and Arm- Armistice and Hecky get out of their car, out of the the Chief's car with the Tommy guns. I got so fucking excited. It's a it's a great week for Metallica with Master of Puppets from Stranger Things being used, and now you have Enter Salmon here. But this was one of the great, maybe as good as Painted Black or close to Painted Black, as far as the orchestrations of the show that they've done. I knew what it was right away. Oh my god! As soon as it queued up, I was like, "Yeah, this is Enter Sandman!" Like immediately, but it, it lends it because it's actually one of those songs that it has like a real musical structure of, of from Metallica in, in a melodic way, and so I think it lends itself perfectly. But it also thematically makes so much it is so great. These guys are coming to kill you to put you to sleep, kind of thing. I loved it. I loved it. I loved the whole safe heist thing. But the music really sold it for me. I don't think I would have liked it as much without that song. It's got such good anticipatory type, you know, intro where you're like, "Yeah." so good yeah it just kind of like starts real slow Maeve relying on her tried and true tactics of getting yourself killed or at least playing dead to get down into the belly of Delos's labs leave well enough alone don't try and improve upon it was the Wyatt uprising going on below that was a game within a game but it was still the game right that was not yes okay that's what I thought it was just something that, that Liza Weil <laughs> triggered, perhaps, through some something she did? Well, I think she kept referring to upon? it as the, as the hidden game, right? Yeah. So maybe it's it's like they're ready to trigger if someone wants to take it that far. However, they got down, right? I mean, we know how Maeve and Caleb made their way down. These guys, Paris and the other group and her posse must have found another way down. But I thought that was a fucking genius move by Delos to have the Westworld massacre hidden game. That's a fucking genius, genius move on top for the show to do, but for Delos as a corporation to not only admit like what happened, but not yeah, not only to own it, but like fully embrace it to bring yeah. back a Wyatt Dolores character to have all of the security guards be hosts kind of thing. I, I thought it was genius. I thought it, and it was something I did not see coming. You know, when I was saying, like, I didn't really enjoy the new Dolores and it was because she felt too young to me. Like, it was weird to see the the Caleb and her like looking at each other was like, she's like 12. Like, stop. Like, you're like 40. Um, Like, it seemed super weird. But the more that we're talking about it, the more that Maeve's words of like, he he's like a second rate kind of like uh, Hector that came in. All of them were a little like that. Like all of these characters were a little less cute, a little less handsome, a little less age appropriate. All, all the things, whatever you want to say that like they were just second rate across the board. None of them like lived up to the originals for me. And so cool that they shot the new Dolores on the way out. Like, man, that's over. like that uprising is done uh did you guys ever see space balls of course what's this space balls you speak of where lord helmet thinks he captures them 
and he turns around and it's just this stunt doubles. Yes. So like the Daphne Zinica is like a guy with like hair, like, like five o'clock shadow. Right. And they're all like less attractive versions than the stars of the movie kind That's of thing. That's exactly right. That's exactly yep. what I thought of here. I was like, these are all like the touring company versions of, you know, the, yes. of the cast kind of thing. Yes. Man, that's really offensive, probably too, to touring companies and to these actors who are playing I, the role. Well, but, so, but 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 I think that's what they're supposed to be doing, though, right? Yeah, Obviously, they're, they're not supposed to be playing like the less like dynamic, less like you know that you're not as as drawn into them. Uh, yeah. So one thing before we just move on to the research level of the Delos lab that Caleb and Maeve find themselves in, you know, it was interesting to me watching Paris and and her posse kind of ransack through the Westworld massacre hidden game and with the bloodlust and all that. It kind of proved the host in black speech right in the last episode when he turns on the lights at Golden Age, that it was time for the public to unleash its true self again. And we talked about how violent a statement that is or how ominous a statement that is. And, and here it is. It's proving itself. This is, I mean, she throws down the Tommy gun. She says it's so cathartic. Mm-hmm. It's the it modern, the it's the super modern version of those, of those rooms where you just pay to smash shit. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. About I mean, just being the, destructive. The deadliest game, man. One thing, one thing we didn't, we haven't really talked about at all is Maeve is still a host. And so it's interesting to think that the stakes are actually real for her down here, right? When bullets are flying, Caleb can't get hurt because they're, the bullets don't hurt humans. But when she takes that bullet in the shoulder, you're like, oh shit, yeah, she really could get like killed down here. Like she got killed so many times, uh, before in the old Westworld park. She actually has to be careful. Like she's not human for, for as natural as she may act around Caleb. I thought that was an interesting thing too just to think about because you spend so much time with them you forget like other than her whammy door opening powers uh yeah a bullet down here is actually maybe fatal to her is anyone else concerned that Maeve is perhaps playing a, a little too john wayne with her abilities like like maybe it is much harder for her to perform her door opening tricks than she's letting on I definitely feel like there's some sense that she's going to end up like sacrificing herself for Caleb because there is a real sense of her becoming depleted and just really she's no longer just constantly in this badass mode. She has this real like concerned. She looks older to me like she looks more like I'm so worried at times instead of just like I got this darling. It's no big deal. Blah, blah, blah. All the time. The it, it, I've got this darling is more of a facade now than her like through and through attitude. She is made of parts, you know, and so the concept that she could tax her body and tax her brain, tax her whatever we're going to call that, her whatever computer chips or what I make. I mean, I think that's very plausible. One, one thing, I mean, right on that same line of thinking for the first time this episode, watching her have to really put some effort into opening the, the cell doors so that Caleb could get to Frankie or host Frankie and, and just watching her last week, you know, struggle to put down or freeze all motor functions on Ken Whitney. It hit me for the first time. There has to be a cost to her power. Mm hmm. Every mage in every role-playing game, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, Paul, uh, you're our official D&D guy, but there's a cost to using power. Video games, you can't use unlimited magic power. Like, there's a cost to using those efforts. Athletes, there's a cost to using their athletic prowess. They have to rest. There's a recharge period. We haven't seen that yet for her, or have we? And if we haven't, what's that going to look like when when that bill eventually come, comes due? We have not seen her rest. You are correct. 
that there is a cost. I mean, there are obviously, if you play with a very picky dungeon master, they will force you to have on hand the various um, eyes of Newt and <laughs> frog tails or whatever. But even if you don't have that, you still have something called spell slots, which are consumed between, as you said, rest periods. If you use up your spell slots, then you're shit out of luck come a fight. And so unless you rest, like we have not seen with her since she kind of upgraded herself, we know that the technology around her has continued to upgrade, but she's still yesterday's model. So is it maybe something where she needs to find a, a current you know, interface pad to get back into her own system. Maybe she may be beyond that. Maybe she can rewrite her own systems. I don't know. I also wouldn't be totally surprised if she needed some kind of upgrade to keep up. It made me wonder once we realized the trap setup of this entire thing with Caleb and Frankie and Maeve, it made me feel like there was almost a, a concerted effort to drain her of her powers in trying to open the door. Like it seemed like she, I mean, that door could have popped open at any time. It could have popped open right away and still achieved Caleb getting in there and then, you know, the doors locking. But it, there seemed to be the, the lengthy time that she had to work on it. And the more and more upset Caleb was getting, it seemed like it did drain her battery. Right. I mean, think about it just in a normal physical exercise, right? So when she finds the door to lead to the research lab, or think about when she, they were at the Whitney compound and she used her power to turn off the camera, that was average effort. That is the equivalent of like walking down the street, right? Putting down Whitney is like a hard, was like a hard run, maybe like a, like a, like a mile run, right? By the same token, the exertion on her face that she used to shut down the machine to open up the cell door, that seemed like uh, maybe a half marathon of exertion or more right there. When you're when you're showing different levels of exertion, there have to be cost to that. There have to be weakenings of that. And I think you're right, Caroline. I can't. It's probably not a coincidence, given the elaborate, elaborate trap laid that she exerted all that power and then the host in black right. shows up for battle right i mean that's just it just seemed like they had like tied one arm behind her back by doing that because she was far less able to handle him uh, a great little bit of acting i thought by thandaway newton when she discovers that frankie is a host right like she doesn't pick it up right away but once they once once her focus is not on opening the door and like she is more in control of her normal powers She's like, oh, like her face just kind of like all the like blood drains out of her face. And she she kind of like goes pale, really. And she's like, oh, shit. Like and she starts yelling for Caleb. And that's when the host in black appears. It was great. I, I thought it was a great little sequence to show that she is does have a weakened state to just retread a little bit. The first floor that they get to and they start to explore where fake Wyatt and Entourage showed up was that whole floor just for show. Yes, it was just a part of the game. Okay. Right, because there, because when she looks on the tablet, there's no official control activity happening. On That's that why floor. she couldn't, like, quote unquote, like, work any of the controls on that floor because it, there really wasn't any. It was like for show. You know? okay. It was like an elaborate dummy markup, right? Yeah. So then they go down to the next level where the trap is waiting specifically for them. Mm -hmm. Slash research. I think it's actually a research facility, right? Pl slash set up for them. Okay, so like the flies, the goo, that's legit. The Frankie, obviously. The man in black, obviously. Or the host in black, if you will. Um, that's for them. 
just for listeners that are that are trying to piece it all together. This was the last step of the plot that began to unfurl from when they arrived at the Whitney estate. Yeah. When An- when host Anastasia says it's about time you showed up through the human Anastasia coming through with her orders to invite them to the Don Giovanni opera to getting on the train to arriving here, knowing Maeve will always get them backstage. They're not going to just take in the sights of temperance. All right. of that, I think, was just a carefully laid plan because Heloris left her there. To deliver the message. Mm -hmm. Left her there to deliver the message, right. All the while also working on her research, right? I mean, she's also been conducting, continued to conduct these human experiences. Those screens, we did the screen grabs of them. Like, those were very elaborate screens with the hosts in or the humans in there presumably they were humans in there with the there are seven stages of control that those humans are being put under the seven stages where they pull the trigger with the gun against their head but i mean it's very elaborate and they all the the screens were all laid out uh there is some interesting coding in if you look in the upper left hand corner of some of the test subjects including frankie like frankie was coded as like a 12a and one of the guys that we see was a 12a but one of the ladies we see did not have a code in that same box um so so it's interesting who knows if it was all hosts but my guess is that it was a combination of real life research that Holoris is conducting on the fly control power plus the trap laid for caleb specifically I realize in looking back that like the moment when they're on the train and they get and they do their thumbprints and it it's their faces and everything on that little computer screen. It was like, I mean, I'm sure there's surveillance everywhere anyway, but there was just that moment of like looking back and being like, oh, man, they like announced themselves, you know, like, oh, right. Well, it's it's just like what Bernard's doing, right? He's got a path that he needs to periodically stop and check to make sure he's on the right path. I'm sure her set out several different tracks traps depending on if they zigged or zagged so just having them check in with their thumbprints and their photos was like okay well we got them on the train so they're following path a to Mm -hmm. here you know is there any reason to think that before Maeve gets into her tussle with the host in black that she knows that that is a host version of William I feel like there was that dialogue between them when I feel like she realizes he says something like, I'm not the same man I used to be or something like that. And I felt like there was some amount of realization, like, wait a minute. Well, she puts him down with the three bullets in his chest, which if it's a gun from there would do damage to a host, but to a human, it would just stun for a little while, right? Yeah, But she runs away, but she could have run away from him thinking he was either human or host at that point. But I I looked a couple of times when I tried rewinding it, and it's not a great angle. It doesn't look like there are any holes in his clothing at all. It almost made me start to think if there was a second host in black on that floor waiting for her. It didn't look like he had any any damage at all from the three bullets she put in in his chest. Now, it may have just been the camera angle. We all are also watching screeners, so these are not final episodes necessarily um, with effects and everything like that. But it made me think that she realized when he said, I'm not, you know, the man you think I am or the man I was. Um, but it also entered my mind, what if there's actually more than one host in black? It would certainly make sense for there to be more than one. I mean, why would you run the risk of just having one? Right. Why one have one main henchman if you could have a whole army of main henchmen? And that's kind of their M.O. I mean, Wyatt, Dolores, I mean, the whole game was about 
replicating yourself, you know, yes. having many. Right. There yes, are many but copies. Re- <laughs> but remember, human William said at the end of last episode, so you're just going to you're just going to replicate yourself and take over the world. And Haloris gets in his face like a like an uncaged animal a little bit. And she snarls at him. We would never bring children in this world. It would be so cruel the way humans consume them. She almost has a I'm not going to do what Dolores did to me. Like, I'm not going to make a, a, a copy of myself the way Dolores was willy-nilly with copies of herself. But but that doesn't that doesn't negate the idea that she could have made many men in black though. Of course, of course. Because you know, she's I was, cool yeah. with them being consumed. Right, right. This was a very personal, like, mother-child thing she was taking. So, you know, I don't think she's going out willy-nilly making copies of herself. But yeah, of main henchman, host in black, who represents a guy that she loathes. Yeah, I could see her making plenty of cannon fodder hosts in black. Let's talk about what we see in the research lab, though, because we see a lot. We see first the maggots, the tray of maggots that are being marinated in the black goo. Then we see the black goo itself in, like, the mason jars. Uh, that the drone hosts, and it's interesting, they're not using ho- f- hosts with faces, right? They're using the straight worker bots that we know ha- Charlotte Hale liked. We see the the mason jars of black goo, and then we see those mason jars being pumped into the cages of the, the flies, right? The, pu- the pubating stages of flies where they turn into maggots into flies. And, and Maeve makes the point that they're infecting the flies with the black goo which is super gross, but it explains what we see coming out of human Anastasia's head when Maeve blows her head open. So that kind of implies that it's more, it's it's not necessarily a mechanical fly. It's an organic fly that is then infected with whatever the black goo is. That definitely seemed to be my takeaway. I don't know, Paul, if you had a thought, but I mean, the way, the way they see, make it seem in that scene or that series of scenes, those look like real flies that are being infected. Uh, I'm gonna hold out for the 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 idea of the the printed flies in the opener. Just this, they're showing us. They're, they're, right. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, they so could. Then, I mean, they could make that. They could make printed flies carriers of disease too. Right. I mean, do we think that the that perhaps again just in the trap whole you know section of it all that that was like a misdirect that. They are not organic flies then that like, but they don't want to, because they know this, whomever, Haloris knows this entire section is really just to trick them into going in there. So they, she like allows them to see something that isn't actually the way that they do it. My guess is that she allows them to see it because she doesn't think they're going to walk out of there alive. I mean, she, I think she thinks Caleb's going to walk out of there under her power and Maeve will be destroyed by the host in black. So it's like one of it's a it's a Bond villain flaw, right? They they'll tell you their whole fucking plan because they <laughs> expect you to die. But I don't know. I mean, I I guess it works. I guess it doesn't disprove that they're printed flies or yeah. Maybe we need more. I think flies are that. a big deal. Like we did a brief analysis in the first uh, podcast episode about little vignettes from the opener, and we did mention the fly, of course. But uh, when we were watching the other night, because um, we were watching the screener, we didn't have the skip ahead button, so we just watched the whole thing again. The final image, after the camera kind of pulls back from the little cylindrical cells, it creates a sphere of little facets that looks exactly like a fly's eye. Oh, okay. Look at it. (laughs) Go back and look. No, you're right. I think I took that to be like the it was making like a brain ball, but I I see that as a a fly's eye, too. 
Yeah, just the multifaceted little little lenses of mm-hmm. of a fly's eye. Well, let's definitely put this like, what is the fly exactly on our conspiracy board over here? Because there's a lot to be understood about that. I mean, we get that she's experimenting with it. And so the idea that she could be infecting, you know, organic, regular biological flies, because why would you grow anything that was printed by a machine like that makes no sense right so why there's would you print maggots to turn else. them into flies yeah so, there's but maybe it's a combination mixture. though maybe yeah. it's like the host in humans maybe it's a, a mixture of printed flies the little cyborgs uh, yeah or or at least a uh maybe there's printed flies mingled with the organic flies that are infected who are where the the printed fly acts as the leader, right? It's programmed whatever the black goo is. It maybe it makes them listen to whoever the printed fly is. Oh, like well, like a conscripted army essentially, right? Like like a drafted army. These these organic flies are being drafted and infected and being led by a printed fly. Well, go back to uh season 1 again. Remember um Dolores's explanation of the Judas steer, the one that leads all mm-hmm. the rest? That's what you got, a Judas fly. There you go, Judas fly. I mean, there is a parallel there in season one, too. Isn't isn't there a whole storyline about flies and the herd getting infected and they need to smoke out uh, the herd? And because maggots always feed or they always kind of infest in like rotting meat kind of thing. There, there's a whole storyline there with Peter Abernathy having to burn the herd or kill off like part of the herd and stuff. And Yeah, you're and right. Flies, I remember that. Yeah. And flies play in that, too. I'm forgetting the details, but flies have been a part of the show the entire time. And maybe I think, Caroline, you said in the first episode, maybe they've been a part of the show in a way that we never appreciated before. Like we, we took them just as as an indicator of host or human, but mm-hmm. maybe they have had a greater meaning the entire time. Yeah, I, I this is this is what I am searching for. And really fun to go back again, listeners, you guys go back and watch season one with a different lens because I think you're going to see flies handled in a completely different way when you think about where we're at now. So two, two more things is on this first screen that they see uh, the it looks like cells interacting and it's Caleb who says that it looks like it's like a parasitic effect, which is interesting, right? If we're seeing a, a up close microscopic look of what the cells are doing and that this is like maybe what the black goo is made of, uh, that the black goo has this parasitic effect built into it. That certainly plays into the human mind control factor of it. Um, but I thought it was a really cool effect when all of the flow and Maeve and Caleb approach the glass and all of the flies float to Caleb. Mm, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, we, cause we had talked about, it, I think in just the last episode, if Caleb maybe was not human, right. If the thing that happened after the lighthouse was that somehow he got turned into a host or she saved his life by making him a host or something like that. This seems to put to bed that question. Uh, as far as Westworld in its oblique way can answer something. It seems to, it seems that be, them being so drawn to him and not Maeve tags him as human. I guess that right whole now. parasitic effect also like speaks to the whole it's not effective to, to infect um, humans one at a time. If you basically let a swarm out who can, you know, effectively change over humans to hosts, um, that's pretty damn effective. <laughs> 
Yeah, I was watching again the Anastasia scene because I was pulling clips for for our episode. And when she says, I, uh, you know, uh, set me free, like you have one thing left to do. And he's like, what is that? And she says, you have to set me free. It really, really made me think like the human is still in there and it's just aware that it needs to die now. We have to think there's an evolution here. You know, we have to think that that Anastasia was one version of what happened with the fly. The concept of instead of building hosts, instead of sitting there and like having the white machine sit there and spin a host, if you could take the entire human population and change it over by unleashing, like you were just saying about the cows, unleashing, you know, this entire bunch, then whether or not their humanity is stuck deep down in there under it all. Okay. But I mean, she obviously has to get the right amount of uh, you know, you can't go completely crazy. We need to control you, but you can't you can't be eating the horse like we, we need you somewhere in between. Listening to uh, parsing Halores's words, enslavement, keeping that humanity inside you so that you're aware of what you're doing and what's happening on some level and aware that you're not in control of yourself. Seems like that would be an attractive feature of this experiment for Halores. Oh, yeah. Like she wants Anastasia to suffer and to go insane at the end. She wanted Cartel Hugo to want to kill himself to, to be free. I think the torture aspect of it, on top of being an effective way of of carrying out your will, is probably a really attractive feature of this whole thing to well, Halores. And then beyond that, you could see where this version of Haloris, given her vengeance-laden mind, the amusement that might come from having humans do your bidding and then kill themselves would only be topped by having humans do your bidding and then live through it and then, <laughs> and then keep living through only doing your bidding and not being able to stop. In that kind of way, you see where perhaps in a Bernard much later future where humanity has just become depleted. Like, you know, so much of humanity has become, quote unquote, livestock to use Haloris's word from last week that, it, it, you know, so much of humanity has been put to work for the host's will and bidding that you could easily see where there would be just pockets of humanity left kind of sitting there fighting back. Then you're in the Terminator. Then you're squarely into John Connor and the Resistance versus <laughs> exactly. the, the Machines. That would also speak to the concept that Halora is saying, like, she's not going to create babies, like, of her own, you know, aka host babies. But the idea that if she's playing with some combination of an organic organic fly that becomes a host there's some sort of game of like the human species can like continue to repopulate her host world by making more of their babies who can suffer and then you know just change them over to hosts whenever she's ready i have true incubators i mean mm-hmm. humans can be true incubators for her her fly very army. smart i mean she says she says to navarro last week she says it wasn't practical. It's not practical to replace you one at a time. I think the dot, dot, dot unspoken there is it's very practical just to insert a fly in your eyeball or your ear <laughs> and take over you. Like, I don't need to go through the work of printing a whole human. Dump a swarm over a city right. and walk right. away. Like, you know, we're not worrying about one eyeball at a time. Like, we're just going to just dump flies all over, you know? Let's talk about the machine that we see there, because I think the the machine in the control room is meant to echo the tower uh, design that we've seen a little bit and it's it's putting out this thrumming th- throbbing hum and this skittering noise I, I had planned on doing a whole impersonation of it but i don't know if you guys actually want to listen to my hum and skittering noises 
because uh, I, I listened to it a whole bunch because it's it's very melodic and and I think we've heard it a bunch. I think it's definitely the sound that the homeless man keeps talking about when Christina walks by. You know, you can't hear it. Can you hear it? I can hear it. The birds can hear it. I think it's actually the same thing that Anastasia is humming while she's carving the horse. Mm, I believe the, that it's the mm, mm, that it's, it's it's kind of repetitive over and over again. Listen to the episode again. Listen to the machine and then when the show goes to credits the music that they're playing as the end credit music in this episode is the machine noise just at different pitches they start with a bass uh bass notes of it and then it goes into like a higher register but it's, they're it's, using the four note like throbbing of the of the machine uh, it's pretty crazy it's not really that dissimilar from the low synthesizer cyberpunk soundtrack that they've used for the last couple of seasons Whenever they've been like doing like flyovers of mm-hmm. of the city, it's always it's made that same kind of melody, but not using the same instrumentation. More just a kind of a hard synthesizer, but it's the same. It evokes the same feeling, at least for me. I, I recognize that as like computery, you know. Yeah, it, it you know, and it's. I mean, if you look at the screen grab of it, the machine has, uh, f- in the same way, in the host cells where it has all of their vitals, it has the seven stages that the host that the experiment is at of control. The printout by the machine, the tower machine, it has levels of frequency that it vibrates at, and based on watching the test subjects in the cells and listening to the machine, and then the skittering noise. It triggers their actions. So build a block, swipe the block off, load the gun, point the gun at your head, pull the trigger. All of those were different frequency triggers. So it really ingenious. I mean, they showed a lot, but you had to kind of put it together and watch the different screens and, and do things like stop it and take kind of like screen grabs and stuff. But really cool. Very I, I normal mean, TV watching things, really, I, if you I think mean, about it. Obviously. If you're a Westworld watcher, come on. Yes. As I used to watch Everybody Loves Raymond the exact same way. So. <laughs> because it plays into this larger idea of the tower out in Christina's world. I think they're clearly connected, this idea that certain beings can hear it, certain hosts can hear it, or NPCs can hear it, and others can't, and and it triggers you. Like, presumably, Caleb, now that he has a fly in his ear, uh, at least it wasn't his eyeball. I was proud of him for really swatting away it from his eyeball. But presumably, he'll be able to hear this machine now going forward. Oh, great. Um, and and see what kind of trigger he has uh let's play frankie's audio clip here uh well frankie bot's audio clip here hey did they get your mom too do you know where she is she here no daddy she's not but me and mommy were never the ones hale needed anyways all she needed was you I thought this was really interesting. This is again this for season four of Westworld being kind of blunt with its with its presentation, saying, you know, we never were the ones that Hale needed. All she needed was you. I mean, that really lays it bare. They're, they're not hiding stuff. We you this trap was for you, Dad. Uh, how creepy was it to find to see her? You know, she's calling him Dad, but then her face splits open and emits all those flies. 
I mean, the tension of him trying to break in was the part that was really getting my heart. I mean, once we got to the part where you realize that he was being, you know, trapped in there and she's like talking to him like the whole what you just said about Hale, then the tension kind of released a little bit because it was like, oh, fuck, you know, but like when he's trying to get in and he's screaming and you're like very unsure where you're at in terms of is she really, you know, his kid? Is she a host? What's the story here? I mean, that that was like breaking my heart as a parent. Watching him turn his head and and mouth Maeve yes. because they would when they would they would move the camera into the cell so it was like soundproof. Yes. I thought it was really effective. Aaron Paul really doing some great acting there, you know. Maybe we should enumerate the possible implications of Haloris having this host version of Frankie on standby. Because there's a couple ranging from the things that we were talking about about Caleb's family being a complete plant. Yes. To, well, maybe she can just make host copies of people without killing them first, which seems to be the, not, well, not killing them. I don't, I don't see why you couldn't, but she, where would she have gotten the copy? You know, the, the information that this child was born after the Rehoboam data collection period was over. Right. You know, so it's not so much that, that she was there. It was that <laughs> what it all implied. And as you pointed out that she's a first generation host. I mean, I don't know if there's, if that's worth reading into it. It's just, they didn't build them after they built them like, um, Dolores in the, in the end of the third season where they had a little armature that was made out of something. I assume they went to this version and then they went to the 3d printed version. And I assume they're on some more advanced version version. Now I have a wild take, please. Cause I'm asking for it. What if the Frankie bot that we see in the cell, the one who's there to lay the trap and whose face opens up and emits the flies. What if that is a reskinned version of Maeve's daughter? Because we don't see a lot of children hosts. We've never seen a lot of kid hosts in Westworld. It's not been a big thing. We've seen a handful uh, throughout the years. Maeve's daughter's storyline being one of the older storylines maybe would make sense that she was a first-generation split-face host. It would, and her body was completely available. Although they didn't show it, I assume it would have washed up with the rest of them in season two. And they would have been about the same height and same age. I mean, her daughter is in that seven to nine-year-old range. We know Frankie is being posited in the seven to eight, nine-year-old range, uh, assuming Caleb is her biological father. What if that did? Because, I mean, thematically and narratively, what a gut punch if Maeve learns that not only were you using, you know, Caleb's daughter as the model for this, this fly-infecting host, it's also based on your daughter this thing that she's hardened her heart to for so long almost make them parents of the same child Ooh, that's wiggy <laughs> i mean i like it i like to tie it back together like that and certainly it's all about loops right so it makes more sense that there'd be like that common bond you know between them and you know again they seem like they're really trying to figure out different ways to create hosts without creating hosts from scratch like you know they're doing all these other things so the idea of just re-skinning her face and and you know making her look like frankie i mean i think it totally works so that but then going back big bigger question then too so like frankie in the closet you know back at the at the stage when when she's supposed to be heading out like human host 
mix. We host don't know. that doesn't know she's a host. Host that doesn't know she's a host. I would, if she's a host, I would definitely say she doesn't know she's a host. Remember, they have the ability now to plant human consciousness in hosts, right? I mean, the fact that Host in Black is around, we know that that technology exists now. And presumably over the last eight years, at least, depending on where we are actually in the timelines and, and, and all of that, the technology's probably only gotten better. Maybe it's more of a, maybe it's an easier thing for them to get that mind pattern and put it implanted into a host. So they could have, so she could be a human whose mind pattern was just copied and placed into a host because the technology has improved. Because remember, Carver is replaced and he's dead. I mean, the human Carver is dead and in a body bag in the trash and a perfect host like a likeness takes his spot and he's only gone for a few minutes while he's out you know teaching bear bear karate Ooh, that was such good delivery when he did like the whole like i'm gonna teach him like the kick punch combo or whatever. like hmm. but but the key is that the carver they replaced him with knew enough about who carver was his update wasn't up to the minute sync because he didn't know about the karate but it was up to date enough that he understood the mission that he was supposed to be helping them pack and he was moving their back and he was he was pitching in he had less sentimentality than human carver but his update was pretty recent right his last save file was pretty recent on where he was and frankie bot knew caleb was her father called him daddy had the same intonations talked about mommy she didn't need mommy or me after all she only needed you that was very much his daughter's mind in this host body so the save files are pretty recent it feels like in these hosts that have these human that are based on humans, maybe big implications again, because Caleb did a lot <laughs> to, to rid the world of the overarching mega mind that collected data and used it against you. So it seems that in the, in the post event world in his life, if he came across shit like that, he'd avoid it, you know, for, for him and his family. The fact that there is this copy, again, big implications, like it doesn't matter. It just didn't matter. It's still there in some way or another. I mean, think about how recent the save file on the Carver would be. I mean, obviously, Holoris and Host in Black know that Caleb and Maeve are at the opera. That's the last time he talks to Carver. But he's transmitting coordinates. If they weren't there, what if they were on some other super secret mission? That that most recent save file, Carver would have had all of that information accessing this on the spot printing kind of thing it, it, it's it's impressive technology if not terribly frightening what it means for how easily replaceable humans are which is what i think they're saying like we are super disposable in the same way we dispose of cows and other livestock animals frightening how's that for making you feel good about yourself <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> i still don't have my head wrapped around and obviously this is going to take more information to figure out if wife and daughter were ever human, were always human, you know, how it all played out. I did think that it was pretty good the way that they shot the parallel of using Frankie in the closet as the lure and then using Frankie in the, the glass cubicle as the lure right and having having carver like come in and having her shoot and then and then him like laugh like oh my god did you think that was gonna get me but it was like he never saw it coming you know that wadi just like shoots him in the head same you know we have caleb and the way that they actually shot it and they flipped 
between the scenes. So it was like you could see then Caleb was having the same dupe happening where he's like coming in and then like, oh, my God. Yeah. Like seeing that the button change and it just being like, oh, my God. Like and then, yeah, same took one to the head. Fly, fly to the head. But also sort of the important purpose of showing you in the at the very least, there are two Frankies out there. One bot for sure and one human or host were unsure right but at the very least there are two frankies it wasn't like they were making clear that you understood this wasn't frankie from the house that had been kidnapped and transported here and we're not fucking with you timeline that way like these are these are two frankies happening at at different places so which is important because in the show like this you start to question everything and begin to suspect everything i i'm i'm very unsure of the timing to be honest with you so i i'm not exactly i'm not exactly sure that they didn't take her body there's not a lot to talk about with owadi and frankie other than what we've already talked about but the one of the big questions was we see them running off into the night where do these two go they have no possessions what's their safety look like where do they run to where are they running to i i don't know that well wadi knows all of caleb's army buddies well enough that they she can go drop in i mean she was supposed to know carver and carver turned out to be trying to kill them so where do owadi and frankie go running into the night that's safe for them exactly was why would we assume that it was just the carver bot that just like strolled up to the other carver and was like hey carver what the hell and then it was just like that one thing why wouldn't there be possibly a little team of these assholes <laughs> out there you know or a little van dropping them off as they pick up the, the well they didn't actually pick up carver's body because that's part of what uh, did him in but still you get my idea here right why would there just be the one hey can we give them like some props that they didn't have a miscommunication from the moment that frankie saw carver's body and came into wadi there yes. was they did not do the tropey like i don't understand what you're saying frankie oh frankie what are you doing they didn't do that she whispered in her ear wadi totally knew what she meant Everyone moved into position, and that was like, thank you for not doing the Three's Company what, you know, kind she of move. She did have to show the blood on her hands. Yeah, but But still. I give Owadi, with all of the nagging that Owadi did on Caleb in the last episode or the first episode, the fact that she took her word so readily, I give her a lot of credit for. And I, I thought it was a nice choice, because if you had asked me how they would have written it based on what we knew about her, she would have been like, you're crazy. That's Carver. You know, like he's... He's moving our bags for us. A host wouldn't move our bags for us. You know, you're paranoid like your father. I would like it a little better if they would have had like a little, you know, some reverby interior dialogue where she was like, again, my husband was right. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about Awadi because we were pretty down on her we were we were accusing her of being control maybe being a host does this episode for sure prove that she's not in control is this just an elaborate thing to keep frankie on her side and under her control for as long as possible or does this prove pretty decisively that she may not be terribly nice to caleb but she's also maybe not ratting on frankie and caleb to holoris or whatever seemed pretty human to me <laughs> so did bernard in season one man what do you think caroline you guys i don't i just don't know 
I just don't know at this point. I mean, I need I more information. I can feel Caroline running her hands through her hair. Just, kind of, because I, I, we're going to get some more backfill. I mean, obviously, there's going to be more information here, and we're going to figure this out. This is the part where as audience members, we tend to start just like running in place because we don't have enough information, like flat out. We don't have enough information. And so we can we can guess. I mean, I think we made some pretty good guesses. I like the stuff that you're saying, Mike, about using Maeve's daughter. I think that that makes so much sense. The parallel between the two of them doing everything for their daughter who like just coincidentally are around the same age and, you know, look really similar. And like, like, like it really felt like, okay, this, this makes sense. Well, just the theming of this season being this echo, this distorted echo of season one, even to the extent that they're using Caleb in the William role, right? Think about all of the similarities, especially in the last episode of Caleb coming into the park and going through the getting dressed you know, getting yeah. dressed uh, scenario with Sophia and William and Angela, him walking through temperance for the first time. So similar to William walking through down to the condensed milk, just the wide eyed staring. I mean, Caleb had obviously heard about the park in Mariposa from uh, from Maeve all these years. But seeing it himself, his, he was like his eyes were wide and his mouth was open the entire time. It's very William parallels. So why wouldn't they parallel the daughter storyline and re and reopen that wound for Maeve, that wound that she fought so hard to harden against and, and move on from now's the perfect time to rip that scab off. Beautiful imagery there, Mike. Thank you. <laughs> scab with flies and magazines. Scabs and flies and flies in your eyes and flies in your ears. Oh, I can't take it. I don't like it. <laughs> this is a, I, I watched this one pretty late at night as a rewatch. This was my favorite episode of the season so far. I, I definitely like this one the best. Oh, yeah, for sure. But, like, I watched it so late that I, I was, like, getting a little nervous. I was going to be having a lot of flies in my eyes uh, nightmares. I was like, oh, this is a daytime episode. <laughs> Before we end, because we're just about the end here, uh, let's go back to the very beginning. Why call this a ne fool? Why use a French word for the crazy years versus just calling it the Roaring Twenties? What's the French connection that I'm missing? Because I, I don't know. Other than the crazy years is a great phrase. But in Fran- I don't get the French connection at all. I like that you keep saying French connection. That's making me laugh. Yeah, um, me laugh <laughs> let's put it on the board. Let's let's see if there's something else that, you know, reveals itself. And we're Shit, like, oh, is Ciroc still mm. around? He was a fucking well, Frenchman. Well, he was gut shot. We were both like, well, mm. and actually when we were just talking about because we're doing the rewatch, remember the woman, Paul, that we cannot ever remember her freaking name. She also seems French. Armistice? No. The the woman, the um Your the mom? like manager. <laughs> The like manager person who she's Dutch though or something, right? I don't know. Uh, what, Teresa, I don't know. The yes. one that Bernard is boning. Yes. Yeah, I think she's Dutch. All right. Well, I was just we were just talking about, I guess, just generally how there was like people like internationally like that that I was like I, tell you, I had totally huh. forgotten that woman existed until I did my rewatch. Uh, me too. But then we were both like, who is this again? Barely she's extremely a important. She yeah. is. I mean, initially it's like she's a big deal, but yeah, it, she got in Ford's way. He said, "Don't get in my way." She did. I remember Elsie macking on the female host, so I'm not going to forget Elsie anytime soon. <laughs> All for Mike. Ter- Teresa treating Bernard bad. Elsie was doing the right thing. Predictions, concerns, things you want for next week? 
Uh, We're already going to be at the fourth episode, you guys. We're going to be mid. I got to expect the back half of this season to be like fireworks. Have they officially said this is the final season? I don't think they have. I think that your mom did. You know, I saw uh, a headline from an unreliable website the other day. That he got renewed for season five. That the same thing. Yeah. Ed Harris was saying something like he thinks it'll go one more season or something, something that effect. But Ed Harris was the one quoted, but it was one of those websites that I never click on because in years past when I have clicked on it, it was, it was the highest rumor. It was that it no, not provable by any means. I I think they're going to go one more. I think that, I think the show gets to season five. I'm not ready for it to be over. I'm not ready. But, you know, when you start doing bookending episodes where you start saying, like, this first one is exactly like the pilot and the second episode has a lot to do with the second episode of the of the first season. I mean, that's classic storytelling. Season t- uh, season five, the return of corporate espionage. Let's get it open. Let's let's look at the books. Let's open up Olympiad. Find out who really owns this motherfucker. That's <laughs> a quest for more money. Oh, my God. <laughs> This is Caroline. And this is Paul. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to the Ballet Beyond, a Westworld podcast. If you wouldn't mind heading over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and rate, review, and subscribe. And while you're there, leave us a five-star rating. That would be great so we don't have to dump your body in an alley and replace you with a host that will leave a five-star review. Because we'll fucking do it. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.